so my name is Ryan, and David, it's David. Your worship was just so beautiful this morning, bro. I, I tell you, I was just speaking to our Father. You just carry such a sweet anointing, my brother. I don't know how long you've been leading worship for. I don't know if you're just a musician, you've got a sweet guitar. I'm a muso, so I was eyeing out your guitar. But you just carry something so beautiful, and I just want to just recognize that publicly. And bless you, man. I pray that God increases that on your life. Um, because worship is the eternal ministry. We have the privilege of preaching the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue presently. But at the end of the age, all we're going to do is fall face down before the king. He is worthy. The lamb slain. Who is seated at the center of the throne. Isn't he amazing? Anyway, I was introducing myself. So my name is Ryan, and uh, in two months I turned 40. I've been married for nearly 16 years. My wife was 19 when I married her, and she literally was, yeah, good decision. And she, <laughs> she literally was the wife of my youth group. Uh, I, let, I was a, a youth pastor, and um, she kept trying to seduce me, and uh, I'm teasing. And she won. She had her way. And um, she was 19 when I married her. I was 24. Uh, I studied uh, economics, commerce, meant to get into business, and we have our own designs for our lives. And yet God called me when I was uh, young, 17 years old. I came to faith, gave my heart, responded to the kind grace of God. And um, uh, we've been in the ministry together from the, the moment we uh, were married. And uh, we used to be a part of leading a church in Durban, South Africa, we were released to move to the United Kingdom, to London. Yay, love that place. And we led a church there that is called Kingsgate. And we're actually going to spend a week with them at the back end of this trip. And uh, then we moved back to South Africa and we're in the process of planting a church called Freedom House. How cool is that? Yeah. And uh, we meet in a shed, believe it or not. And uh, it's a very wealthy part of, of Durban, the northern suburbs, as it were, of Durban. And we meet in a shed. And when I say a shed, it's a shed. It's concrete floors, yeah, gum poles, wooden gum poles, uh, tin roof, tin house, tin cup, uh, with open sides, hessian open sides. And it's completely confusing to everybody. You, you get people that walk in and they've been in church for many years. They look at us and they go, you are mad. And we say, yes, wait until you get to know us. We're very mad. <laughs> Just kidding. And, um, but very quickly, they begin to fall in love with us because at the end of the day, we don't have programs to offer. We do have good coffee on tap, which is a help. We, we don't have programs to offer. Uh, it's really raw and really rough, but Jesus is alive in our midst. And people are not drawn to rules and regulations and formulas. They're drawn to him. He is the desired of the nations. Did you know that? Everybody wants Jesus. They really do. They just, um, they need to have their hearts opened. And, uh, and so we are having a whole lot of fun. It's been a two-year process and more um, significantly in the last year. And people are being gathered. It's really wild. And uh, I have five children, believe it or not. Yes, we do. Uh, four homegrown and one foreign import. And uh, he is Congolese. He's two and a half years, um, been living with us for two and a half years. He's 18. And um, 
my eldest daughter Zoe, two girls and a boy. So the girls are the brackets, the parenthesis that keep the boys tidy and in place as they do. And her name is Zoe. She's absolutely amazing. She is uh, 12 going on president of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said to me the other day, Dad, what must I do to be the president? <laughs> said, babe, you just keep doing what you're doing. And then we have amazing Gabriel. He's 10. In fact, uh, I want to say this for our friends from uh, towards Russia. He had a dream several years ago. and his dad were flying we were flying over Russia preaching the gospel special have Samuel, who is our resident hobbit. Ah, excuse me. <clears throat> when this happens, I'm at home. Um, oh, good, good. <laughs> Yay. And we have Samuel. <clears throat> he is uh, seven years old, curly brown hair. And then there is Lily the lioness who's three years old. Yay. <laughs> and that's our family. And um, you know, God's strategy to change the world is profoundly simple. In the Garden of Eden, our God, Father, Son, and Spirit had a great plan that he began to unfold. And he said, let us make man in our image. And in his image, he created them, male and female. And it's quite remarkable because there was Adam before Eve pitched up. Whoa, man. And God had to say to Adam, if you remember Genesis 2, he had to say to Adam, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. That's profound. That means Adam had no idea that he was alone. Have you ever thought of that? He was walking in perfect Trinitarian intimacy with God. He was dancing in the dance of Father, Son, in the Spirit. And he was satisfied utterly in the very presence of God. And God himself had to say to Adam, Boy, it's not good for you to be alone. What was he trying to communicate to him? Simply this. In order to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God... Something has to be put in place. It's called family. You need to fall in love with a woman, boy. And this girl needs to fall in love with you. The strategy of God in filling the earth with his glory is profoundly simple. That he would give birth out of his heart in love to a family that would, in love, produce fruit called sons and daughters. And in that place and from that place of great deep love, as they would raise sons and daughters, they would fill the earth. Be fruitful, increase in numbers, and fill the earth, subdue the earth. The strategy of God from the beginning of time was simply this, 
family filling the earth. Isn't that amazing? And that's why I get moved when I talk about my family, because I'm a part of God's unstoppable movement to change the world. And we all know that Genesis 3 was, an, was a spanner in the works. It didn't go, catch God by surprise because he is Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But we see that great darkness filled the earth. In Genesis 11, it's pretty darn dark. Isn't it true? Man building in his own strength great towers to the heavens and God came down in the Tower of Babel. We all know that. But in the midst of great darkness, on the backdrop of great darkness, I want to ask you this question. Did our great God change his mind in order to change the world? Did he change his strategy? Not one iota. He chose a man, Abram, from a pagan background, an Ur of the Chaldeans. And he chose Abram who was married to Sarai, barren, unable to have her own children. And then he brought Lot, his nephew, an orphaned nephew. Isn't that quite profound? And he called a family. And he said, this is how we're going to change the world. You're going to follow me. You're going to respond to my kind offer of grace. And I'm going to declare you righteous. And as you follow me in faith and in love, you will give birth to a son of promise, Isaac. God has not changed his plan. It started in the garden. It was reinitiated in Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, to raise a family because it is family that speaks to who we are as church today. And I want you to think of Jesus. Jesus could have land, landed as an X-man. You know what X-men are? But you don't watch movies like that, do you? He could have landed with his Superman underpants. Ta-da, I've come to change the world. But he was born to a virgin, married to Joseph, Mary. The world-changing process of God was instituted in family. Isn't that incredible? That is God's unstoppable strategy for changing the world. And that's what we were worshiping about this morning. I just absolutely was overwhelmed by that. And all of that speaks to the church today. The pinnacle expression of the church is not an army. It's not even a rescue center. It is the family of God. Is that making sense to you this morning? It might be a foreign concept because... All of us go through dramatic life processes. I've seen some things growing up. But it is the family of God that changes the world. I want to read a scripture to you in Ephesians chapter 2. And then I want to present a picture. And then we'll see what Father God will do. So Ephesians chapter 2, it's amazing. In verse 11, it speaks about this new creation called the new man, that we are neither Greeks, Greeks, we're neither Gentiles nor Jews, we're neither male nor female. There is a new creation in the body of Christ. It's the new man that is found in Jesus, the church. It's absolutely profound. And in chapter 2, verse 19, the scriptures say this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, 
You are no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household. Can you say household? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become the holy temple. Would you say temple? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. We stood in remarkably beautiful cathedrals yesterday. The Anglican and the Catholic cathedrals here in Armagh. Wow, breathtaking. I tell you, they, the Catholics know certainly how to build stunning edifices that are breathtaking. But we stood there and it was quite overwhelming because here so much time and attention is given to the architecture and the mosaics and the gold and the filigrees and all splendid things. And yet the church for thousands of years, shall we say hundreds of years, it's only 2,000 some change anyway, for many, many hundreds of years has focused on brick and mortar instead of focusing on the very thing that Jesus died for and was raised to life for. A living body that he would live in as his home. Can you say a home? The pinnacle of the church is the dwelling place of God. And one of my heroes, I want to boast about him, his name's Bono, Paul Hewson from the one and only great band U2. Anybody love U2? Yeah, yay, come on. And in one of his songs, yes, I listen to many secular songs. I hope you will listen to what I'm saying now. He was preaching the gospel in one of his songs, and he says, A house does not make a home. Anybody heard that song? A house doesn't make a home. That's profound. If you walk into my home, you will certainly see that it's not a house. Why? A house is clinical, it's clean, it's neat, it's tidy. There's no mess on the floor. Everything's in place. It's all at 90 degrees. You see the pictures. They are, they are, they square. Thank you. Basil's the builder. It's not Bob the builder, it's Basil the builder. But you walk into my home and you will see very quickly the evidence that it is a home. Lily's been around. She's been climbing on the chairs, pulling out the carrots. She's been pulling out the, the little rows of tomatoes and eating them and, and pieces of carrots and the juice of, of tomatoes everywhere. There are ants crawling on the floor. We have ants in Africa, lots of them. And we have flies and we have jolly mosquitoes. And there are crumbs everywhere. And you walk into the lounge and the lounge, well, all the cushions are everywhere. Why? Because my kids are living in my home. You walk into their bedrooms and there's marks on the walls, the pencils and the crowns. It's glorious. It's home. A house doesn't make a home. There is evidence to a home that we live in there. And you come into my bedroom, Melissa and my bedroom, and you will clearly see where Ryan's part of the room is and Melissa's. My part of the room is decidedly neat. Melissa, well, she's got Polish in her family, and, it's, and there's lots of mess on that side. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Pavel, I'm just pulling your leg. She's flamboyant. It's all over the show. 
My point is there's evidence to God dwelling, at least to the Matthews clan dwelling, in our place, 98 Sabuti, on the north coast. This is true equally for God with his people. There is evidence to God dwelling with us. He's looking for a home. He's looking for a place to abide. The reason why I'm saying all of this as an introduction this morning, and you need to bear with me, I want to lead you somewhere, is that the pinnacle of the gospel is not justification. It is, in fact, adoption. The reason why Jesus Christ redeemed the earth was that we would be reconciled to the Father. Behold, we are a new creation. If you are in Christ, the old is gone, 2 Corinthians. Yeah, you know the scripture. And the new has come. God was in Christ, in himself, reconciling the world to himself. That language speaks of something profound. That he is bringing us through the avenue of redemption back into the Father's arms. To be reconciled in a living relationship with Father God. I want to say that the, the, the work of redemption is glorious. It is utterly breathtaking. I stand here today so proud to be redeemed. I used to be a sinner and now I am a saint. I am the hagios of God. I'm the righteousness of Christ through no work of my own, but His kind grace. Jair Packer says something incredible. He says this, To be right with God as judge is a great thing. Who would agree with that? Isn't it wonderful to be right with God as judge? Fabulous. But to be loved and to be cared for by God the Father is a greater I want to ask you a question for those who are married here. Who's married? Just lift up your hands, please. Proudly. Yay. Whoops. In South Africa, when we get married, it's true here of the United Kingdom. That you receive a marriage certificate. Who has a marriage certificate? Where is it? It's filed away in some cupboard somewhere. I equally have filed my marriage certificate away. It's there. I do not wake up in the morning with my marriage certificate on the side of my bed. Yeah. And I wake up and I go, oh. And I pick up my marriage certificate and I go, I am married. Do you do that? No. I've been married nearly 16 years. I do not need a marriage certificate to remind me that I am happily, joyfully married. I have, on the other hand, well, I've got albums, photo albums, and it's now on my phone. And there, is, there are pictures of us doing life together, living life together. Pictures of us standing in all sorts of places. Lots of selfies. The selfie generation. The true evidence that I am married in a legal covenant before God and before the laws of the land is not a marriage certificate, but a photo album. Isn't that true? You don't need to look at your marriage certificate to remind you that you're married. If you do, God help you. The sad fact of the matter 
is that while you and I do not live legally in our marriage, we do not live our marriage through a legal lens, but a relational lens. Isn't that true? In our Christianity, generally around the world, where I've ministered, I've ministered in many places. Most Christians live out their Christianity through a legal or forensic lens. As opposed to a relational lens. Make no mistake, the analogy rings true. I can only experience and enjoy the privilege of relationship with my, my wife and the joys of conjugal rights, you know, and all those good things that are the privilege of marriage that only comes with marriage because of a marriage certificate. But I do not live through a marriage certificate. I enjoy the breadth of my privileged relationship. Does that make sense? Why then do you and I, generally speaking, live our Christianity through a legal forensic lens of God and Christianity? Am I making sense this morning? I want to just read a few scriptures to you. John 14 verse 6 says, this is Jesus speaking, our great king and our great example. I am the way, we know the scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the, speak to me, no one can come to the Father but through me. The passionate pursuit of Jesus was to give him his life as the perfect substitute and sacrifice that we would come into a living relationship with whom? A legal idea of what Christianity is? No. That we would approach him as the caring father that he is. Whoever has my commands will keep them because he loves me. The one who loves me Verse 21 of John chapter uh, 14, will be loved by my Father. Wow. And I will love them too and show myself to them. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. This is the reason why Jesus redeemed us, that we would be loved by the Father. Sorry, I'm keeping it so simple this morning. John 16, verse 26. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from the Father. In other words, in that day, ascended, filled by the Spirit, living in the days of the outpoured Spirit, you will speak directly with the Father because you're in the Son. Can you see where I'm going with all of this? Very simple. John 17 verse 6. I have revealed you. This is the great prayer. It's, the, it's Jesus' prayer. It's the Lord's prayer, not John chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is the Lord's prayer. I have revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I have revealed you. Everything Jesus came to do was reveal the Father. You want to know the Father? Jesus is the perfect display of him. Matthew chapter 6, it's remarkable. Jesus is contrasting religious life and kingdom life. Because his hearers only understood what it me- meant to live a religious life as, through the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says this, 
And when you pray, do not pray like those hypocrites. For they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners. We heard some the other day. Praying out loud to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, you go into the room, you close the door, and you pray to whom? Your Father. Say, your Father. Who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the, the pagans, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Then this is how you should pray. Our Father, you're in heaven. Hallowed be your name. That phrase, our Father, Jesus uses a very important word. It was Aramaic. He uses the word Abba. You know the word? Abba. It was Aramaic. You see, the religious leaders of the day would pray Father, but they would use a high religious word in Hebrew called Abinu. It meant father, but it was very much high language. Aramaic was the language of the street. It was street language. And Jesus says, you're not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're not like these guys that would stand on the corners and pray highfalutin language. Father. But when you speak to him, you call him Papa. Street language. Jesus was breaking their understanding of what it means to walk in the kingdom of God. He uses street language in our approach to the creator of the galaxies. Do you know how offensive that is? I can feel it in the room. It was offensive to them. It is offensive to us today. Because you and I think that the great display of our religious duty is austere Christianity and using very high religious language. And yet the kingdom of God is nothing like that. The kingdom of God is Abba. I mean, my son comes to me, my daughters. They don't walk up to me and say, Good morning, Father. How art thou this morning? Do your kids do that to you? My kids walk up to me and they make up words for me and they say, Hello, da. Hello, puppy. Hello, daddy. And they sometimes get cheeky with me. And I absolutely love it. They have little names for me. And they throw their arms around me. They wake me up far too early. And they never come with coffee. And yet you and I think that to approach God as Abinu, is very, very much the highest form of Christianity. Amen? And yet God is wanting to shift our view because before He is God who judges and who is righteous, He is our Father. I feel like I need to apologize for the simplicity of my message. You see, Western theology has reduced God to prepositions. He is holy. He is righteous. He is omniscient. He is all-powerful. But the Hebrew mind of our God who is Trinity 
understands God through a relational lens. The, the end of Western Christianity is that the pinnacle of God is he is the righteous judge. And he certainly is. But the Eastern, Middle Eastern Hebrew mind where Christianity comes from, the pinnacle of Christianity is that God is Father. And Jao Packer says it perfectly. And I agree with him. We have a choice in how we live out our Christianity. Will we live it out through the legal lens of justification? I am justified. Or will we live it out through the lens of adoption? And so I want to walk you through a process this morning. And may I say this. Justification, as Packer says, the means by which God forgives us of our past with the acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And it's not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need, which is forgiveness. The world needs forgiveness. But again, he says this, but this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is the higher blessing because of the richer relationship that we have with God as a result. Justification is the primary, but it is not the higher. The higher blessing is that we get to be sons and daughters. Now, the illustration that I want to give you, and you need to work with me, is between justification and adoption. The courtroom and the living room or a lounge. And I want you to work with me here. Justification is a forensic or legal idea. It is conceived in terms of law. Here, with the lens of justification, our view of God is that He is the righteous judge. And truly He is. And our understanding is that it's in a courtroom with a legal environment of rules and regulations, rights and wrongs. Jesus in the, the, the lens or the environment of justification, Jesus is both advocate and the sub, sacrificial substitute. It is in this environment that we are proclaimed justified, just as if I had never sinned, simply. It is a legal declaration over our lives, no sin on Ryan, no sin on you, no sin on Ivan. Justified. It is a legal pronouncement. In this environment, the repentant sinner is forgiven and is seen as a justified saint. In adoption, this is the primary. Adoption is the higher, the culmination of the gospel. It is a family idea. The former is a forensic legal idea. The latter, the culmination, is a family idea. Say family. It is conceived in terms of love. Here, our view of God is Father. It, it takes place, instead of a courtroom, it takes place in a living room, in a lounge, with a family atmosphere of closeness and affection, acceptance and generosity. Jesus, in this environment, is technically, biblically, our older brother. Isn't that quite fabulous? Did you know that Jesus is not just your king, he is actually your older brother. Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us that we are of the same family. He is our older brother. Here, 
as opposed to the legal environment, the forensic environment, the pronouncement is not justification. You are justified. The pronouncement is welcome home. Here in this environment of adoption, the forgiven and the justified saint is welcomed as father's children and co-heirs with Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's just the beginning. One cannot enjoy the delight and joy of adoption without thankful relief for justified forgiveness. You cannot live in the environment, the living room with the Father, without thankful for relief that I have been justified of all my sins. Everything racked up and stacked up against me, past, possibly present, possibly future, has been done away with. I am so thankful that I have been justified. We cannot live in the environment as adopted sons and daughters without thankfulness. A justified and forgiven believer is, however, to journey toward the outcome of justification. In other words, we sit in the courtroom and there is an open door. We are pronounced justified, no longer sinners, loved saints. And we are to walk through the door towards the living room. The culmination and the natural progression of justification is to push towards the living room with the Father. Does that make sense? All believers, sorry, may I say this, sadly not all believers walk out of the courtroom and into the living room. I would venture to say that many seated here today are still in the courtroom and Father God is no longer there. He's waiting for you. In the living room. Sadly, many believers, I lived in that place for a very long time. All believers who make their home in the living room with the fathers are always thankful and cognizant of the outcome of the courtroom. Everyone who lives in the lounge with Abba is so thankful and is always aware of what took place that day where we were declared righteous. Richard Rohr, I don't know if you know him, he says this, History has so long operated with a static and imperial image of God. As a supreme monarch who is mostly living in splendid isolation from what he created. This God is seen largely as a critical spectator and his followers do their level best to imitate their creator. We always become what we behold. We always become what we behold, he says. The presence we practice matters. That has huge implications in the light of what I'm saying. That is why we desperately need a worldwide paradigm shift in Christian consciousness regarding how we relate to God. C.S. Lewis says, I think it's C.S. Lewis if I remember correctly, that your view of God is the most important thing that you could ever think about. Your most important thought is your view of God. Now, I want to ask you this question. Where do you live? Do you live in a courtroom or do you live in the living room, the lounge? A believer stuck in the courtroom looks something like this. A believer in the courtroom develops a limited view of God being judged. Now, I'm stepping on some eggshells here. 
But I want to venture to say that to have a view of God as righteous judge alone is a limited and not a full view of Him. A believer stuck in the courtroom becomes rooted in a legalized mind of rules where ticking the right box is the most important thing. That's a person living in the courtroom. They talk about holiness all the time. Ooh, I'm getting into trouble already. A, a believer living in the courtroom talks about rights and wrongs and has a legalized mind. It's all about ticking the right box. Did I do the right thing? Subtly, a believer stuck in the courtroom moves inextricably towards an over-awareness of what is wrong. Think about that. If you live with a checklist, checklist Charlie, in the courtroom, am I doing things correctly because it's all about right and wrong in a legalized environment, in a forensic environment, we become overly aware of the things that we are not doing. We become highly introspective, aware of what we are not achieving. Punishment becomes our prevailing paradigm. We are urged on in our Christianity when we live in the courtroom by obligation. Living under the mantra of I must. When you spend time with a Christian living in the courtroom, it's all about I must, I must, I must. I want to finish that. I know a rhyme that would be inappropriate for this environment. I must, I must, I must go to church. If I don't go to church on Sunday, well, God the righteous judge, I'm, I'm not ticking that box. I must be a good person. I must be faithful to walk the elderly across the road, lest they are squashed by a bus. I must go on missions. And we live with this internal obligation mindset. I must, must come to the prayer meeting. And normally those Christians are at everything. They are faithful tithers. They faithfully go on missions. They faithfully come to the prayer meeting. And they always early at church to help set out the chairs. But it's generally through a lens of obligation. Imagine, husbands, if your wife loved you in that fashion. Come on. Slowly but surely, such a person living in this environment, I hope I'm not being uh, inappropriate here. Such a person establishes an unmoving black and white lens, which is either or. Black and white, you're either in or out. It's all about being right or wrong. Sadly, this person becomes overly introspective regarding personal lack of achievement as well as critical of others who sin. You want to know if a person lives in the courtroom? (laughs) Well, they are introspective. They're always talking themselves down. They don't pray enough. They're not doing their devotions enough. And they become critical of others who don't achieve the standard. Well, that person is such a terrible Christian. They listen to Jimi Hendrix. Or, you know, how can you have Led Zeppelin in your, you know, or oh, I'm just, I'm being extreme. I'm being extreme. Or how can they listen to you too? You're not a good Christian if you listen to you too. 
You know? You've got to listen to the Gaithers. Yeah. And my mum-in-law absolutely loves the Gaithers and she's trying to get me baptized into their music. <laughs> Does that make sense? You become critical of yourself and invariably you project your own inner world onto others. You develop a cynical view of those who seem to emphasize the love of the Father. I've received that from such people. Ryan, you talk too much about the Father. Sounds like my older brother Jesus. He spoke a lot about the Father. <sighs> the people who live in the courtroom are critical and cynical. Oh, it's oh, too much love. Too much love. Their worship is all about love. People in this environment get stuck in the mud of law and legalism and become Pharisees delighting in religious duty. Oh, I go to church every Sunday. I'm so faithful in my generous giving. And it becomes something that they become proud about. A person living in the courtroom. Eventually, such a person becomes joyless, graceless, lacking in empathy, and painfully condescending. Such Christians look down upon the rest of Christendom with a turned up nose and an attitude of condescension. I dislike being around such. Now, sad, boring, joyless, as if they have been baptized in lemon juice or possibly even vinegar. People who remain in the courtroom are driven by works to achieve the favor of God. And as I list these characteristics, obviously there is no one in the room like this. Sadly, I want to confess that much of this was my life as a pastor. And then I had a revelation. Praise God. A believer at home in the living room embraces a growing, important, a growing view of God as Father, who is certainly holy. Oh, He is holy. I want to say this, that the highest form of holiness is not not doing naughty things. Holiness is not being a good person. Holiness is being like our Father. Holiness is actually being in love. That's the highest form of holiness. A believer who makes his home in the living room becomes liberated in a family environment of acceptance and warm delight. A believer in the living room is inspired by what is right and is compelled by love, which is the highest form of holiness. Paul says, I lay down my life. I do all that I do. I take on persecution, not because I must, because I am compelled by love. When last did you say, I'm going to go to the nations. I'm going to preach the gospel, not because we do it as Grace Community Church, not because Jesus is a missionary God, but because I am desperately in love. Come on. Love compels. Love is that 
unstoppable engine in our lives that says lay down, sacrifice, joyfully in love. I want you to know something. Jesus did not come down and make himself like you and I, taking on human form out of obligation. Okay, Papa, I'll do it. Oh, must I? Okay, I will. He came down passionate and in love. Come on. That's the gospel. That's the jolly good news that he is obsessed and in love with you and I. Come on. That's it. Is inspired and compelled by love, which is the highest form of holiness. Restoration and reconciliation is the lens through which we see broken matters. When we see a broken person, when we live in the lounge, we go, oh, can't I just wrap the arms of the Father around you because you're meant to be whole and healed? Not, oh, stop your sinning, you silly Christian. You see, you are getting what you deserve. You, you, you reap what you sow. When you come across a broken Christian that's, that's caught up in sin, David, your heart goes out to them and you go, you are meant to be restored and reconciled to the Father in right identity. Spurred on by a desire that empowers true Christianity, which is I want to want you, God. Let's be honest. Most times I can't honestly say I want you, God. At very least, I say, Lord, I want to want you the way that I know that I'm made to. Not out of obligation, but out of desire. Desire. Discipline. Out of desire. I approach my devotions because I want to be near God. The, the, the New Testament word for worship that is repeated over and over again is the Greek word, which literally means to come forward to kiss. Come on, life. Yeah, baby. Now I'm going to get cheeky here. I gave my wife a kiss one morning and she said, don't you dare give me chicken bum kisses. Well, that's actually quite funny. <laughs> not funny. Well, it's not funny to get a chicken bum kiss, of course. But this is a chicken bum kiss. Can you purse your lips? When it's really like pursed and like chicken bumish. And a lot of people's Christianity looks like chicken bum kisses. Oh, come on, work with me. It's okay. We're in church. Relax. Everyone do a chicken bum kiss. God's not into chicken bum kisses. He's into affection and warmth. Why did I go down that? Neil, I'm so sorry. I'm never coming back, I guess. Let's make it count while I can. Oh, I don't know where I am. Always looking to encourage each other. Develops a gracious view of others who may not understand the Father's love. Thrives on a solid foundation of grace in the living room. Such a person grows in joy as they discover more of the wonders of God's love and affection as a father. As father. My wife, when I first started dating her, she was really concerned that quite possibly God would have me marry her. Do you know why? I was so very serious. Furrowed brow. Very serious about Christianity. Lacking in laughter and joy. And then I discovered the definition of grace, charith. And it literally means joy. I read the definition and I went, oh no, I'm clearly not operating in grace. And as I began to discover the breathtaking nature 
of God's righteousness in my inability, I became a happy, happy camper. I began to realize that my Father in heaven is the happiest, most joyful person on the planet. Booyah. Suddenly people wanted to be around me. I'll never forget Matt Roberts, who is part of planning the church with us. He's a very successful businessman. He used to be very upset with my preaching on a Sunday. But then he said something changed. And he said to his wife, Kerry, what's happened with Ryan? Do you know what happened? I discovered that God is happy and he likes me, doesn't just love me, and he wants to embrace me. I started getting happy. People wanted to be around me. And then I got married. It works. This person that lives in the living room is inspired by intimacy with the Father and is inspired by love for Father God and is constantly discovering that. Now, who are you? Where do you live? Don't put your hands up. I want to provoke you. If the culmination of the gospel is the arms of the Father, Why do we live in the courtroom? If the culmination of the gospel is family, why do we live with a forensic lens? What does living room gospel, what does a living room gospel say about you and me? It says this, that the pinnacle of our identity is that we are children of God. Who are you, Ryan? I'm a preacher. I'm a church planter. I'm a missionary. No, I'm, I'm a loved son. And I'm not trying to be cheesy. I am a loved son. Before anything else, before I'm a servant, before I'm a minister, before I'm a business person, before I'm a church planter, I am a loved son and that's what makes me happy. I've recently, the last five years, Pavel, don't fall asleep. Family. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, resting, family. It's okay. Just don't snore, okay? Bless you. I'm nearly done. That's an indication that I need to hurry the heck up. (laughs) I've recently walked through the fires of uh, gossip, slander, and rejection as a church leader. You you hear stories and go, never, I'm the coolest cat and I'm a nice guy. I've been through that ring of fire. It's painful. But I tell you what, the only thing that has kept me sane and joyful is that I'm loved by Father God. You know, I wake up in the morning and there's one waiting for me. His name is Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And all he wants to say is, I love you. Do you know what that does to you? You become fearless and powerful beyond measure. What else does it say about us? That I'm welcomed and received and accepted. That I'm loved and I am liked. You know, God doesn't just love you. He likes you. Oh, I have to be with him. No, he likes being around us. He likes being with me. He likes being with you. He likes your presence. Wild Puma. He loves your presence. He loves rubbing shoulders with you. Jesus did not isolate himself. He was called a friend of sinners. A wino. Why? Because he was rubbing shoulders. With real humans. He didn't walk around going, away from me, vile sinner. Sinners felt the safest around him. Isn't that amazing? The prostitutes and the tax collectors. 
said, I don't want to be anywhere near a Pharisee. But that Jesus, I just want to be near him. And when I'm near him, I want to change to be like him. Can I ask you a question? When people hang around you, do they want to be near you? It's a sure indication of where you live and the gospel that you embrace. My source of life is intimacy with the Father. I pursue holiness and right living because of love, not because I want to be right. I want to be right. No, I want to be in love. I'm nearly done. I have full access to the Father. My favor, I'm favored before the Father. And the most privileged place I can be is on his lap and not my knees. Religious piety is depicted by knees, hey? Oh, do your kids come and bow before you on their knees? What do they do? They jump on your lap. They, they jump on your lap. And they say, Dad, the greatest place of holiness is not on your knees. It's in the lap of the Father. When you think of the throne of God, do you think of a bedazzled chair? I want to propose that quite possibly it is a warm, red, velvet sofa. Can take his weight and yours. And I'm placed within a family called the church, the church's first family. We go to war, we take territory. Why? Because of family. We protect the land, we destroy the enemy. We rise up early and declare the protection of God over our people. Why? Because we're family. Lastly, a few questions. What is your default view of yourself? Secondly, what is your default view of God? What is the feeling of your relationship with God? Religious and pious or warm and friendly? How do you speak with God? Father or Papa? Does love for God lead your steps or is it about being right with God? Are you able to be in God's presence without saying a word? Or is it filled with verbal transactions? Have you noticed that when you get to know someone, you say less and you feel quiet at home? Isn't that true? Your big smile here. The beginning of the gospel is redemption. But the culmination is reconciliation. We are rightfully the righteousness of Christ declared justified. But it's just the beginning. The cross is not where it ends. It's where it just begins. It's like getting on a car to travel down south to Dublin. The car's packed. The, the tank is full. The tires are checked. And we get into the car and we just sit. What a great trip. Oh, Dublin's amazing, and we haven't even left the driveway. 
us. We had great adventures. Now we get into the car of justification and we drive into the home with the Father. That's who we are. That's who you are. That's who he is most importantly. It is not irreligious to speak of him as father. To walk with him as father. To embrace him and be embraced by him as papa. It is the highest form of holiness. It is the greatest display of true Christianity. And I want to propose that this is what every person on the planet is desperate desperate to be loved by the Father. Our issue in South Africa, with all our racism, with all our brokenness, with all our political mess, it sounds possibly like a similar history here and other parts of the world. Do you know what the issue is? It's not black and white. It's orphanness. It's a spirit of rejection. It's a broken heart. And the great remedy for South Africa and the great remedy for the United Kingdom and the great remedy for Poland and Belarus is the loving embrace of the Father. It is fierce. G.K. Chesterton speaks of the furious love of God. Imagine a church who knows that they are loved by the Father. We become fearless. We will lay down our lives with joy for a broken generation, for a broken world and have a smile on our face along the way. What would you want? Ma'am, what is your name? Yeah, Vicky. Wow. Father God just absolutely adores you. Do you know that? You're getting to know him. Yeah. And um, I've just felt his heart beating for you while I've been speaking. Is this, is, are you family? Are you friends? Cool, good. Friends are good. But he just absolutely adores you. He really likes being around Vicky. He loves your voice. Your face is beautiful to him. He is so proud of you. You can never disappoint him. That's the gospel. And this gentleman over here, wow, you've got such a, an amazing, joyful face. What is your name, sir? Andrew. Andrew. Oh, I prayed for an Andrew last night. Whoa, he just really loves you. And he delights in you. And he is proud of you. Is that your family over here? Awesome. Some of them. Are you also like Father Abraham? Yeah. Join the club. Oh, good. But I literally with integrity and honesty, without prophesying, can go around to every person here and say you are dearly loved. You are dearly loved, ma'am. What is your name? Sharon. Where are you from? Dungannon. Yeah. Can I pray for you quickly, please? Is that okay? I really don't want to embarrass you, but I just just want to pray for you. You can sit. Sitting's good. <laughs> This is cool. Can I just pray for it? Yeah. Just checking with the bosses. And that's Judith, of course. <laughs> yeah, she's nodding. So, Father, I want to thank you for Shannon. 
thank you that today she is so excited about coming out of the courtroom. Yeah. I thank you. Holy Spirit, you're the spirit of truth that leads us into all understanding. And I thank you that her life is changing again. It's like she's saying, I'm about to be born again, again, to the power of 10. I thank you for greater depths of revelation and understanding of how much you love her as your daughter. And that's all she's wanted to know her whole life, that she is loved for who she is. So I just bless her with that today in the name of Jesus. I thank you that even now her heart is swelling with emotion. Not because I'm trying to prod and poke her emotion, but because this is hitting home. This means everything to her. It's, it's ringing a clear, resonant sound in her heart. And so I bless you, Shannon, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to know the Father's love, to know His embrace, to know His affection. And I just take off every lie that says you've got to perform. I just, I just break off performancism off of you in Jesus' name. And I release the rest and the delight of the Father upon you. I bless you to know His love. I bless you to know His delight. I bless you to know His affection. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for letting me pray. Can I just look across the crew and just see? What's going on? Is that okay? Just a minute or two? Five. We finished at midnight last night. And I was like, oh my goodness. And Daryl says, chill, man. We're normally done by midnight anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone want to jump on the guitar and just tinkle on the ivories. Oh, David. Yeah. Oh, cool. Can we do that song? Would that be okay? That one about the war is over. Yeah, it's a sweet one, eh?